Chapter 8 Planes of Correspondence As above, so below. As below, so above. The Kabbalion The great second hermetic principle embodies the truth that there is a harmony, agreement, and correspondence between the several planes of manifestation, life, and being. This truth is a truth because all that is included in the universe emanates from the same source, and the same laws, principles, and characteristics apply to each unit, or combination of units, of activity, as each manifests its own phenomena upon its own plane. For the purpose of convenience of thought and study, the Hermetic philosophy considers that the universe may be divided into three great classes of phenomena, known as the three great planes, namely, the great physical plane, the great mental plane, the great spiritual plane. These divisions are more or less artificial and arbitrary, for the truth is that all of the three divisions are but ascending degrees of the great scale of life, the lowest point of which is undifferentiated matter, and the highest point, that of spirit. And moreover, the different planes shade into each other, so that no hard and fast division may be made between the higher phenomena of the physical and the lower of the mental, or between the higher of the mental and the lower of the physical. In short, the three great planes may be regarded as three great groups of degrees of life manifestation. While the purposes of this little book do not allow us to enter into an extended discussion of, or explanation of, the subject of these different planes, still we think it well to give a general description of the same at this point. At the beginning, we may as well consider the question so often asked by the neophyte who desires to be informed regarding the meaning of the word plane, which term has been very freely used and very poorly explained in many recent works upon the subject of occultism. The question is generally about as follows. Is a plane a place having dimensions, or is it merely a condition or state? We answer, no, not a place, nor ordinary dimension of space, and yet more than a state or condition. It may be considered as a state or condition, and yet the state or condition is a degree of dimension, in a scale subject to measurement. Somewhat paradoxical, is it not? But let us examine the matter. A dimension, you know, is a measure in a straight line, relating to measure, etc. The ordinary dimensions of space are length, breadth, and height, or perhaps length, breadth, height, thickness, or circumference. But there is another dimension of created things, or measure in a straight line, known to occultists, and to scientists as well, although the latter have not as yet applied the term dimension to it. And this new dimension, which, by the way, is the much speculated about fourth dimension, is the standard used in determining the degrees or planes. This fourth dimension may be called the dimension of vibration. It is a fact well known to modern science, as well as to the hermetists who have embodied the truth in their third hermetic principle, that everything is in motion, everything vibrates, nothing is at rest. From the highest manifestation to the lowest, everything and all things vibrate. Not only do they vibrate at different rates of motion, but as in different directions and in a different manner. 
The degrees of the rate of vibrations constitute the degrees of measurement on the scale of vibrations. In other words, the degrees of the fourth dimension. And these degrees form what occultists call planes. The higher the degree of rate of vibration, the higher the plane, and the higher the manifestation of life occupying that plane. So that while a plane is not a place, nor yet a state or condition, yet it possesses qualities common to both. We shall have more to say regarding the subject of the scale of vibrations in our next lessons, in which we shall consider the hermetic principle of vibration. You will kindly remember, however, that the three great planes are not actual divisions of the phenomena of the universe, but merely arbitrary terms used by the hermetists in order to aid in the thought and study of the various degrees and forms of universal activity and life, the atom of matter, the unit of force, the mind of man, and the being of the archangel, are all but degrees in one scale, and all fundamentally the same, the difference between solely a matter of degree and rate of vibration. All are creations of the all, and have their existence solely within the infinite mind of the all. The hermetists subdivide each of the three great planes into seven minor planes, and each of these latter are also subdivided into seven subplanes, all divisions being more or less arbitrary, shading into each other, and adopted merely for the convenience of scientific study and thought. The great physical plane, and its seven minor planes, is that division of the phenomena of the universe which includes all that relates to physics or material things, forces and manifestations. It includes all forms of that which we call matter, and all forms of that which we call energy or force. But you must remember that the Hermetic philosophy does not recognize matter as a thing in itself, or as having a separate existence even in the mind of the All. The teachings are that matter is but a form of energy, that is, energy at a low rate of vibrations of a certain kind. And accordingly, the Hermetists classify matter under the head of energy, and give to it three of the seven minor planes of the great physical plane. These seven minor physical planes are as follows. The plane of matter, A. The plane of matter, B. The plane of matter, C. The plane of ethereal substance. The plane of energy, A. The plane of energy, B. The plane of energy, C. The plane of matter, A, comprises the forms of matter in its form of solids liquids, and gases, and generally recognized by the textbooks on physics. The plane of matter, B, comprises certain higher and more subtle forms of matter of the existence of which modern science is but now recognizing the phenomena of radiant matter in its phases of radium, etc., belonging to the lower subdivision of this minor plane. The plane of matter, C, comprises forms of the most subtle and tenuous matter, the existence of which is not suspected by ordinary scientists. The plane of ethereal substance comprises that which science speaks of as the ether, a substance of extreme tenuity and elasticity pervading all universal space and acting as a medium for the transmission of waves of energy, such as light, heat, electricity, etc., this ethereal substance 
forms a connecting link between matter, so-called, and energy, and partakes of the nature of each. The Hermetic teachings, however, instruct that this plane has seven subdivisions, as have all of the minor planes, and that, in fact, there are seven ethers, instead of but one. Next above the plane of ethereal substance comes the plane of energy, A, which comprises the ordinary forms of energy known to science, its seven subplanes being, respectively, heat, light, magnetism, electricity, and attraction, including gravitation, cohesion, chemical affinity, etc., and several other forms of energy indicated by scientific experiments but not as yet named or classified. The plane of energy, B, comprises seven subplanes of higher forms of energy not as yet discovered by science, but which have been called nature's finer forces, and which are called into operation in manifestations of certain forms of mental phenomena, and by which such phenomena becomes possible. The plane of energy, C, comprises seven subplanes of energy so highly organized that it bears many of the characteristics of life, but which is not recognized by the minds of men on the ordinary plane of development, being available for the use on beings of the spiritual plane alone. Such energy is unthinkable to ordinary man, and may be considered almost as the divine power. The beings employing the same are as gods, compared even to the highest human types known to us. The great mental plane comprises those forms of living things known to us in ordinary life, as well as certain other forms not so well known except to the occultist. The classification of the seven minor mental planes is more or less satisfactory and arbitrary, unless accompanied by elaborate explanations which are foreign to the purpose of this particular work, but we may as well mention them. They are as follows. The Plane of Mineral Mind the plane of elemental mind A, the plane of plant mind, the plane of elemental mind B, the plane of animal mind, the plane of elemental mind C, the plane of human mind. The plane of mineral mind comprises the states or conditions of the units or entities, or groups and combinations of the same, which animate the forms known to us as minerals, chemicals, etc. These entities must not be confounded with the molecules, atoms, and corpuscles themselves, the latter being merely the material bodies or forms of these entities, just as a man's body is but his material form and not himself. These entities may be called souls, in one sense, and are living beings of a low degree of development, life, and mind, just a little more than the units of living energy which comprise the higher subdivisions of the highest physical plane. The average mind does not generally attribute the possession of mind, soul, or life to the mineral kingdom, but all occultists recognize the existence of the same, and modern science is rapidly moving forward to the point of view of the hermetic in this respect. The molecules, atoms, and corpuscles have their loves and hates, likes and dislikes, attractions and repulsions, affinities and non-affinities, etc. And some of the more daring of modern scientific minds have expressed the opinion that the desire and will 
emotions, and feelings of the atoms differ only in degree from those of men. We have no time or space to argue this matter here. All occultists know it to be a fact, and others are referred to some of the more recent scientific works for outside corroboration. There are the usual seven subdivisions to this plane. The plane of elemental mind, A, comprises the state or condition and degree of mental and vital development of a class of entities unknown to the average man, but recognized to occultists. They are invisible to the ordinary senses of man, but nevertheless exist and play their part of the drama of the universe. Their degree of intelligence is between that of the mineral and chemical entities on the one hand, and of the entities of the plant kingdom on the other. There are seven subdivisions to this plane also. The plane of plant mind, in its seven subdivisions, comprises the states or conditions of the entities comprising the kingdoms of the plant world, the vital and mental phenomena of which is fairly well understood by the average intelligent person. Many new and interesting scientific works regarding mind and life in plants having been published during the last decade. Plants have life, mind, and souls, as well as have the animals man and superman. The plane of elemental mind, B, in its seven subdivisions, comprises the states and conditions of a higher form of elemental or unseen entities, playing their part in the general work of the universe, the mind and life of which form a part of the scale between the plane of plant mind and the plane of animal mind, the entities partaking of the nature of both. The plane of animal mind, in its seven subdivisions, comprises the states and conditions of the entities, beings, or souls, animating the animal forms of life, familiar to us all. It is not necessary to go into details regarding this kingdom or plane of life, for the animal world is as familiar to us as is our own. The plane of elemental mind, C, in its seven subdivisions, comprises those entities or beings invisible, as are all such elemental forms, which partake of the nature of both animal and human life in a degree and in certain combinations. The highest forms are semi-human in intelligence. The plane of human mind, in its seven subdivisions, comprises those manifestations of life and mentality which are common to man, in his various grades, degrees, and divisions. In this connection, we wish to point out the fact that the average man of today occupies but the fourth subdivision of the plane of human mind, and only the most intelligent have crossed the borders of the fifth subdivision. It has taken the race millions of years to reach this stage, and it will take many more years for the race to move on to the sixth and seventh subdivisions and beyond. But remember that there have been races before us which have passed through these degrees and then on to higher planes. Our own race is the fifth, with stragglers from the fourth, which has set foot upon the path. And then there are a few advanced souls of our own race who have outstripped the masses and who have passed on to the sixth and seventh subdivision, and some few being still further on. The man of the sixth subdivision will be the superman. He of the seventh will be the overman. In our consideration of the seven minor mental planes, we have merely referred to the three elementary planes in a general way, 
We do not wish to go into this subject in detail in this work, for it does not belong to this part of the general philosophy and teachings. But we may say this much, in order to give you a little clearer idea of the relations of these planes to the more familiar ones. The elementary planes bear the same relation to the planes of mineral, plant, animal, and human mentality and life that the black keys on the piano do to the white keys. The white keys are sufficient to produce music, but there are certain scales, melodies, and harmonies in which the black keys play their part and in which their presence is necessary. They are also necessary as connecting links of soul condition, entity states, etc., between the several other planes, certain forms of development being attained therein. This last fact, giving to the reader who can read between the lines, a new light upon the processes of evolution, and a new key to the secret door of the leaps of life between kingdom and kingdom. The great kingdoms of elementals are fully recognized by all occultists, and the esoteric writings are full of mention of them. The readers of Bulwer's, Sinoni, and similar tales will recognize the entities inhabiting these planes of life. Passing on from the great mental plane to the great spiritual plane, what shall we say? How can we explain these higher states of being, life, and mind? to minds as yet unable to grasp and understand the higher subdivisions of the plane of human mind. The task is impossible. We can speak only in the most general terms. How may light be described to a man born blind? How sugar to a man who has never tasted anything sweet? How harmony to one born deaf? All that we can say is that the seven minor planes of the great spiritual plane each minor plane having its seven subdivisions, comprise beings possessing life, mind, and form as far above that of man today as the latter is above the earthworm, mineral, or even certain forms of energy or matter. The life of these beings so far transcends our own that we cannot even think of the details of the same. Their minds so far transcend ours that to them we scarcely seem to think and our mental processes seem almost akin to material processes. The matter of which their forms are composed is of the highest planes of matter. Nay, some are even said to be clothed in pure energy. What may be said of such beings? On the seven minor planes of the great spiritual plane exist beings of whom we may speak as angels, archangels, demigods. On the lower minor planes, dwell those great souls whom we call masters and adepts. Above them come the great hierarchies of the angelic hosts, unthinkable to man, and above those come those who may without irreverence be called the gods. So high in the scale of being are they, their being, intelligence, and power, being akin to those attributed by the races of men to their conceptions of deity. These beings are beyond even the highest flights of the human imagination, the word divine being the only one applicable to them. Many of these beings, as well as the angelic host, take the greatest interest in the affairs of the universe and play an important part in its affairs. These unseen divinities and angelic helpers extend their influence freely and powerfully in the process of evolution and cosmic progress. Their occasional intervention and assistance in human affairs 
have led to the many legends, beliefs, religions, and traditions of the race, past and present. They have superimposed their knowledge and power upon the world again and again, all under the law of the all, of course. But yet, even the highest of these advanced beings exist merely as creations of, and in, the mind of the all, and are subject to the cosmic processes and universal laws. They are still mortal. We may call them gods if we like, but still, they are but the elder brethren of the race, the advanced souls who have outstripped their brethren, and who have foregone the ecstasy of absorption by the all, in order to help the race on its upward journey along the path. But they belong to the universe, and are subject to its conditions. They are mortal, and their plane is below that of absolute spirit. Only the most advanced hermetists are able to grasp the inner teachings regarding the state of existence and the powers manifested on the spiritual planes. The phenomena is so much higher than that of the mental planes that a confusion of ideas would surely result from an attempt to describe the same. Only those whose minds have been carefully trained along the lines of the hermetic philosophy for years Yes, those who have brought with them from other incarnations the knowledge acquired previously can comprehend just what is meant by the teaching regarding these spiritual planes. And much of these inner teachings is held by the hermetists as being too sacred, important, and even dangerous for general public dissemination. The intelligent student may recognize what we mean by this when we state that the meaning of spirit, as used by the hermetists, is akin to living power, animated force, inner essence, essence of life, etc., which meaning must not be confounded with that usually and commonly employed in connection with the term, such as religious, ecclesiastical, spiritual, ethereal, holy, etc., etc. To occultists, the word spirit is used in the sense of the animating principle, carrying with it the idea of power, living energy, mystic force, etc., and occultists know that that which is known to them as spiritual power may be employed for evil as well as good ends, in accordance with the principle of polarity, a fact which has been recognized by the majority of religions in their conceptions of Satan, Beelzebub, the devil, Lucifer, fallen angels, etc., and so the knowledge regarding these planes has been kept in the Holy of Holies, in all esoteric fraternities and occult orders, in the secret chamber of the temple. But this may be said here, that those who have attained high spiritual powers, and have misused them, have a terrible fate in store for them, and the swing of the pendulum of rhythm will inevitably swing them back to the furthest extreme of material existence, from which point they must retrace their steps spiritward along the weary rounds of the path, but always with the added torture of having always with them a lingering memory of the heights from which they fell, owing to their evil actions. The legends of the fallen angels have a basis in actual facts, as all advanced occultists know. The striving for selfish power on the spiritual planes inevitably results in the selfish soul losing its spiritual balance and falling back as far as it had previously risen. But, to even such a soul, the opportunity of a return is given, and such souls 
make the return journey, paying the terrible penalty according to the invariable law. In conclusion, we would again remind you that according to the principle of correspondence which embodies the truth, as above, so below, as below, so above, all of the seven hermetic principles are in full operation on all of the many planes, physical, mental, and spiritual. The principle of mental substance, of course, applies to all the planes, for all are held in the mind of the all. The principle of correspondence manifests in all, for there is a correspondence, harmony, and agreement between the several planes. The principle of vibration manifests on all planes. In fact, the very differences that go to make the planes arise from vibration, as we have explained. The principle of polarity manifests on each plane, the extremes of the poles being apparently opposite and contradictory. The principle of rhythm manifests on each plane, the movement of the phenomena having its ebb and flow, rise and flow, incoming and outgoing. The principle of cause and effect manifests on each plane, every effect having its cause and every cause having its effect. The principle of gender manifests on each plane, the creative energy being always manifest and operating along the lines of its masculine and feminine aspects. As above, so below. As below, so above. This centuries-old hermetic axiom embodies one of the great principles of universal phenomena. As we proceed with our consideration of the remaining principles, we will see even more clearly the truth of the universal nature of this great principle of correspondence. Chapter 9. Vibration Nothing rests. Everything moves. Everything vibrates. The Kabbalion The great third hermetic principle, the principle of vibration, embodies the truth that motion is manifest in everything in the universe, that nothing is at rest, that everything moves, vibrates, and circles. This hermetic principle was recognized by some of the early Greek philosophers, who embodied it in their systems. But, then for centuries it was lost sight of by the thinkers outside of the hermetic ranks. But in the 19th century, physical science rediscovered the truth, and the 20th century scientific discoveries have added additional proof of the correctness and truth of this centuries-old hermetic doctrine. The hermetic teachings are that not only is everything in constant movement and vibration, but that the differences between the various manifestations of the universal power are due entirely to the varying rate and mode of vibrations. Not only this, but that even the all, in itself, manifests a constant vibration of such an infinite degree of intensity and rapid motion that it may be practically considered as at rest the teachers directing the attention of the students to the fact that even on the physical plane, a rapidly moving object, such as a revolving wheel, seems to be at rest. The teachings are to the effect that spirit is at one end of the pole of vibration, the other pole being certain extremely gross forms of matter. Between these two poles are millions upon millions of different rates and modes of vibration. Modern science has proven that all that we call matter and energy are but modes of vibratory motion, and some of the more advanced scientists are rapidly moving toward the positions of the occultists 
who hold that the phenomena of mind are likewise modes of vibration or motion. Let us see what science has to say regarding the question of vibrations in matter and energy. In the first place, science teaches that all matter manifests, in some degree, the vibrations arising from temperature or heat, be an object cold or hot, both being but degrees of the same things. It manifests certain heat vibrations, and in that sense is in motion and vibration. Then all particles of matter are in circular movement, from corpuscle to suns. The planets revolve around suns, and many of them turn on their axes. The suns move around greater central points, and these are believed to move around still greater, and so on, ad infinitum. The molecules of which the particular kinds of matter are composed are in a state of constant vibration and movement around each other and against each other. The molecules are composed of atoms, which, likewise, are in a state of constant movement and vibration. The atoms are composed of corpuscles, sometimes called electrons, ions, etc., which are also in a state of rapid motion, revolving around each other, and which manifest a very rapid state and mode of vibration. And, so we see that all forms of matter manifest vibration in accordance with the hermetic principle of vibration. And so it is with the various forms of energy. Science teaches that light, heat, magnetism, and electricity are but forms of vibratory motion connected in some way with, and probably emanating from, the ether. Science does not as yet attempt to explain the nature of the phenomena known as cohesion, which is the principle of molecular attraction, nor chemical affinity, which is the principle of atomic attraction, nor gravitation, the greatest mystery of the three, which is the principle of attraction by which every particle or mass of matter is bound to every other particle or mass. These three forms of energy are not as yet understood by science, yet the writers incline to the opinion that these two are manifestations of some form of vibratory energy, a fact which the hermetists have held and taught for ages past. The universal ether, which is postulated by science without its nature being understood clearly, is held by the hermetists to be but a higher manifestation of that which is erroneously called matter, that is to say, matter at a higher degree of vibration, and is called by them the ethereal substance. The hermetists teach that this ethereal substance is of extreme tenuity and elasticity, and pervades universal space, serving as a medium of transmission of waves of vibratory energy such as heat, light, electricity, magnetism, etc. The teachings are that the ethereal substance is a connecting link between the forms of vibratory energy known as matter, on the one hand, and energy or force on the other, and also that it manifests a degree of vibration in rate and mode entirely on its own. Scientists have offered the illustration of a rapidly moving wheel, top or cylinder, to show the effects of increasing rates of vibration. The illustration supposes a wheel, top, or revolving cylinder running at a low rate of speed. We will call this revolving thing the object. In following out the illustration, let us suppose the object is moving slowly. It may be seen readily, but no sound of its movement reaches the ear. The speed is gradually increased. In a few moments, 
its movement becomes so rapid that a deep growl or low note may be heard. Then, as the rate is increased, the note rises one in the musical scale. Then, the motion being still further increased, the next highest note is distinguished. Then, one after another, all the notes of the musical scale appear, rising higher and higher as the motion is increased. Finally, when the motions have reached a certain rate, the final note perceptible to human ears is reached, and the shrill, piercing shriek dies away, and silence follows. No sound is heard from the revolving object, the rate of motion being so high that the human ear cannot register the vibrations. Then comes the perception of rising degrees of heat. Then after quite a time, the eye catches a glimpse of the object becoming a dull, dark, reddish color. As the rate increases, the red becomes brighter. Then, as the speed is increased, the red melts into an orange. Then the orange melts into a yellow. Then follow, successively, the shades of green, blue, indigo, and finally violet, as the rate of speed increases. Then the violet shades away, and all colors disappear the human eye not being able to register them. But there are invisible rays emanating from the revolving object, the rays that are used in photographing and other subtle rays of light. Then begin to manifest the peculiar rays known as the X-rays, etc., as the constitution of the object changes. Electricity and magnetism are emitted when the appropriate rate of vibration is attained. When the object reaches a certain state of vibration, its molecules disintegrate and resolve themselves into the original elements or atoms. Then the atoms, following the principle of vibration, are separated into the countless corpuscles of which they are composed. And finally, even the corpuscles disappear and the object may be said to be composed of the ethereal substance. Science does not dare to follow the illustration further. But the hermetists teach that if the vibrations be continually increased, the object would mount up the successive states of manifestation and would, in turn, manifest the various mental stages, and then on spiritward, until it would finally re-enter the all, which is absolute spirit. The object, however, would have ceased to be an object long before the stage of ethereal substance was reached. But otherwise, the illustration is correct inasmuch as it shows the effect of constantly increased rates and modes of vibration. It must be remembered, in the above illustration, that at the stages at which the object throws off vibrations of light, heat, etc., it is not actually resolved into those forms of energy, which are much higher in the scale, but simply that it reaches a degree of vibration in which those forms of energy are liberated, in a degree from the confining influences of its molecules, atoms, and corpuscles, as the case may be. These forms of energy, although much higher in the scale than matter, are imprisoned and confined in the material combinations, by reason of the energies manifesting through and using material forms, but thus becoming entangled and confined in their creations of material forms, which, to an extent, is true of all creations the creating force becoming involved in its creation. But the hermetic teachings go much further than do those of modern science. They teach that all manifestation of thought, emotion, reason, will, or desire, or any mental state or condition, are accompanied by vibrations, a portion of which are thrown off and which tend to affect the minds of other persons by induction, 
This is the principle which produces the phenomena of telepathy, mental influence, and other forms of the action and power of mind over mind, with which the general public is rapidly becoming acquainted, owing to the wide dissemination of occult knowledge by the various schools, cults, and teachers along these lines at this time. Every thought, emotion, or mental state has its corresponding rate and mode of vibration, and by an effort of the will of the person, or of other persons, these mental states may be reproduced, just as a musical tone may be reproduced by causing an instrument to vibrate at a certain rate, just as color may be reproduced in the same way. By a knowledge of the principle of vibration, as applied to mental phenomena, one may polarize his mind at any degree he wishes, thus gaining a perfect control over his mental states, moods, etc. In the same way, he may affect the minds of others, producing the desired mental states in them. In short, he may be able to produce on the mental plane that which science produces on the physical plane, namely, vibrations at will. This power, of course, may be acquired only by the proper instruction, exercises, practice, etc., the science being that of mental transmutation, one of the branches of the hermetic art. A little reflection on what we have said will show the student that the principle of vibration underlies the wonderful phenomena of the power manifested by the masters and adepts who are able to apparently set aside the laws of nature, but who in reality are simply using one law against another, one principle against others, and who accomplish their results by changing the vibrations of material objects or forms of energy, and thus perform what are commonly called miracles. As one of the old hermetic writers has truly said, he who understands the principle of vibration has grasped the scepter of power. Chapter 10. Polarity Everything is dual. Everything has poles. Everything has its pair of opposites. Like and unlike are the same. Opposites are identical in nature, but different in degree. Extremes meet. All truths are but half-truths. All paradoxes may be reconciled. The Kabbalion The great fourth hermetic principle, the principle of polarity, embodies the truth that all manifested things have two sides, two aspects, two poles, and a pair of opposites, with manifold degrees between the two extremes. The old paradoxes, which have ever perplexed the mind of men, are explained by an understanding of this principle. Man has always recognized something akin to this principle, and has endeavored to express it by such sayings, maxims, and aphorisms as the following, Everything is and isn't at the same time. All truths are but half-truths. Every truth is half-false. There are two sides to everything. There is a reverse side to every shield, etc., etc. The hermetic teachings are to the effect that the difference between things seemingly diametrically opposed to each other is merely a matter of degree. It teaches that the pairs of opposites may be reconciled, and that thesis and antithesis are identical in nature but different in degree, and that the universal reconciliation of opposites is affected by a recognition of this principle of polarity. The teachers claim that illustrations of this principle may be had on every hand, 
and, from an examination into the real nature of anything, they begin by showing that spirit and matter are but two poles of the same thing, the intermediate planes being merely degrees of vibration. They show that the all and the many are the same, the difference being merely a matter of degree of mental manifestation. Thus the law and laws are the two opposite poles of one thing. Likewise, principle and principles, infinite mind and finite minds. Then, passing on to the physical plane, they illustrate the principle by showing that heat and cold are identical in nature, the difference being merely a matter of degrees. The thermometer shows many degrees of temperature, the lowest pole being called cold and the highest heat. Between these two poles are many degrees of heat or cold. Call them either and you are equally correct. The higher of two degrees is always warmer, while the lower is always colder. There is no absolute standard. All is a matter of degree. There is no place in the thermometer where heat ceases and cold begins. It is all a matter of higher or lower vibrations. The very terms high and low, which we are compelled to use, are but poles of the same thing. The terms are relative. So with east and west, travel around the world in an eastward direction, and you will reach a point which is called west at your starting point, and you return from that westward point. Travel far enough north, and you will find yourself traveling south, or vice versa. Light and darkness are poles of the same thing, with many degrees between them. The musical scale is the same, starting with C, you move upward until you reach another C, and so on. The differences between the two ends of the board being the same, with many degrees between the two extremes. The scale of color is the same, higher and lower vibrations being the only difference between high violet and low red. Large and small are relative, so are noise and quiet. Hard and soft follow the rule. Likewise, sharp and dull. Positive and negative are two poles of the same thing, with countless degrees between them. Good and bad are not absolute. We call one end of the scale good and the other bad, or one end good and the other evil, according to the use of the terms. A thing is less good than the thing higher in the scale, but that less good thing, in turn, is more good than the thing next below it, and so on, the more or less being regulated by the position on the scale. And so it is on the mental plane. Love and hate are generally regarded as being things diametrically opposed to each other, entirely different, unreconcilable. But we apply the principle of polarity. We find that there is no such thing as absolute love or absolute hate, as distinguished from each other. The two are merely terms applied to the two poles of the same thing. Beginning at any point of the scale, we find more love or less hate as we ascend the scale, and more hate or less love as we descend, this being true no matter from what point, high or low, we may start. There are degrees of love and hate, and there is a middle point where like and dislike become so faint that it is difficult to distinguish between them. Courage and fear come under the same rule. The pairs of opposites exist everywhere. Where you find one thing, you find its opposite, the two poles. And it is this fact that enables the hermetist to transmute one mental state into another along the lines of polarization. Things belonging to different classes cannot be transmuted into each other. 
but things of the same class may be changed, that is, may have their polarity changed. Thus love never becomes east or west, or red or violet, but it may and often does turn into hate, and likewise hate may be transformed into love by changing its polarity. Courage may be transmuted into fear, and the reverse. Hard things may be rendered soft, dull things become sharp, hot things become cold, and so on, the transmutation always being between things of the same kind of different degrees. Take the case of a fearful man. By raising his mental vibrations along the line of fear and courage, he can be filled with the highest degree of courage and fearlessness. And likewise, the slothful man may change himself into an active, energetic individual simply by polarizing along the lines of the desired quality. The student who is familiar with the processes by which the various schools of mental science, etc., produce changes in the mental states of those following their teachings, may not readily understand the principle underlying many of these changes. When, however, the principle of polarity is once grasped, and it is seen that the mental changes are occasioned by a change of polarity, a sliding along the same scale, the latter is readily understood. The change is not in the nature of a transmutation of one thing into another thing entirely different, but is merely a change of degree in the same things, a vastly important difference. For instance, borrowing an analogy from the physical plane, it is impossible to change heat into sharpness, loudness, highness, etc., but heat may readily be transmuted into cold, simply by lowering the vibrations. In the same way, hate and love are mutually transmutable, so are fear and courage, but fear cannot be transformed into love, nor can courage be transmuted into hate. The mental states belong to innumerable classes, each class of which has its opposite poles, along which transmutation is possible. The student will readily recognize that in the mental states, as well as in the phenomena of the physical plane, the two poles may be classified as positive and negative, respectively. Thus love is positive to hate, courage to fear, activity to non-activity, etc., etc. And it will also be noticed that, even to those unfamiliar with the principle of vibration, the positive pole seems to be of a higher degree than the negative, and readily dominates it. The tendency of nature is in the direction of the dominant activity of the positive pole. In addition to the changing of the poles of one's own mental states by the operation of the art of polarization, the phenomena of mental influence in its manifold phases shows us that the principle may be extended so as to embrace the phenomena of the influence of one mind over that of another, of which so much has been written and taught of late years. When it is understood that mental induction is possible, that is, that mental states may be produced by induction from others, then we can readily see how a certain rate of vibration or polarization of a certain mental state may be communicated to another person, and his polarity in that class of mental states thus changed. It is along this principle that the results of many of the mental treatments are obtained. For instance, a person is blue, melancholy, and full of fear. A mental scientist bringing his own mind up to the desired vibration by his trained will and thus obtaining the desired polarization in his own case, then produces a similar mental state in the other by induction, the result being that the vibrations are raised 
and the person polarizes toward the positive end of the scale instead of toward the negative, and his fear and other negative emotions are transmuted to courage and similar positive mental states. A little study will show you that these mental changes are nearly all along the line of polarization, the change being one of degree rather than of kind. A knowledge of the existence of this great hermetic principle will enable the student to better understand his own mental states than those of other people. He will see that these states are all matters of degree, and seeing thus, he will be able to raise or lower the vibration at will, to change his mental poles, and thus be master of his mental states, instead of being their servant and slave, and by his knowledge, he will be able to aid his fellows intelligently, and by the appropriate methods, change the polarity when the same is desirable. We advise all students to familiarize themselves with this principle of polarity, for a correct understanding of the same will throw light on many difficult subjects. Chapter 11 Rhythm Everything flows out and in. Everything has its tides. All things rise and fall. The pendulum swing manifests in everything. The measure of the swing to the right is the measure of the swing to the left. Rhythm compensates. The Kabbalion. The great fifth hermetic principle, the principle of rhythm, embodies the truth that in everything there is manifested a measured motion, a to and from movement, a flow and inflow, a swing forward and backward, a pendulum-like movement, a tide-like ebb and flow, a high tide and a low tide, between the two poles manifest on the physical, mental, or spiritual planes. The principle of rhythm is closely connected with the principle of polarity described in the preceding chapter. Rhythm manifests between the two poles established by the principle of polarity. This does not mean, however, that the pendulum of rhythm swings to the extreme poles, for this rarely happens. In fact, it is difficult to establish the extreme polar opposites in the majority of cases. But the swing is ever toward first one pole and then the other. There is always an action and reaction, an advance and a retreat, a rising and a sinking, manifested in all the airs and phenomena of the universe. Suns, worlds, men, animals, plants, minerals, forces, energy, Mind and matter, yes, even spirit, manifests this principle. The principle manifests in the creation and destruction of worlds, in the rise and fall of nations, in the life history of all things, and finally, in the mental states of man. Beginning with the manifestations of spirit, of the all, it will be noticed that there is ever the outpouring and the indrawing, the outbreathing and inbreathing of Brahm. As the Brahmins word it, universes are created, reach their extreme low point of materiality, and then begin their upward swing. Suns spring into being, and then their height of power being reached. The process of retrogression begins, and after aeons they become dead masses of matter, awaiting another impulse which starts again, their inner energies into activity, and a new solar life cycle is begun. And thus it is with all the worlds, 
They are born, grow, and die, only to be reborn. And thus it is with all the things of shape and form. They swing from action to reaction, from birth to death, from activity to inactivity, and then back again. Thus it is with all living things. They are born, grow, and die, and then are reborn. So it is with all great movements, philosophies, creeds, fashions, governments, nations, and all else. Birth, growth, maturity, decadence, death, and then new birth. The swing of the pendulum is ever in evidence. Night follows day, and day night. The pendulum swings from summer to winter, and then back again. The corpuscles, atoms, molecules, and all masses of matter swing around the circle of their nature. There is no such thing as absolute rest or cessation from movement, and all movement partakes of rhythm. The principle is of universal application. It may be applied to any question or phenomena of any of the many planes of life. It may be applied to all phases of human activity. There is always the rhythmic swing from one pole to the other. The universal pendulum is ever in motion. The tides of life flow in and out according to law. The principle of rhythm is well understood by modern science and is considered a universal law as applied to material things. But the Hermetists carry the principle much further and know that its manifestations and influence extend to the mental activities of man and that it accounts for the bewildering succession of moods, feelings, and other annoying and perplexing changes that we notice in ourselves. But the Hermetists, by studying the operations of this principle, have learned to escape some of its activities by transmutation. The Hermetic Masters long since discovered that, while the principle of rhythm was invariable and ever in evidence in mental phenomena, still there were two planes of its manifestation so far as mental phenomena are concerned. They discovered that there were two general planes of consciousness, the lower and the higher, the understanding of which fact enabled them to rise to the higher plane and thus escape the swing of the rhythmic pendulum, which manifested on the lower plane. In other words, the swing of the pendulum occurred on the unconscious plane, and the consciousness was not affected. This they call the law of neutralization. Its operations consist in the raising of the ego above the vibrations of the unconscious plane of mental activity so that the negative swing of the pendulum is not manifested in consciousness, and therefore they are not affected. It is akin to rising above a thing and letting it pass beneath you. The hermetic master or advanced student polarizes himself at the desired pole, and by a process akin to refusing to participate in the backward swing, or, if you prefer, a denial of its influence over him, he stands firm in his polarized position and allows the mental pendulum to swing back along the unconscious plane. All individuals who have attained any degree of self-mastery accomplish this, more or less, unknowingly, and by refusing to allow their moods and negative mental states to affect them, they apply the law of neutralization. The master, however, carries this to a much higher degree of proficiency, and by the use of his will, he attains a degree of poise and mental firmness, almost impossible of belief on the part of those who allow themselves to be swung backward and forward by the mental pendulum of moods and feelings. 
The importance of this will be appreciated by any thinking person who realizes what creatures of moods, feelings, and emotion the majority of people are, and how little mastery of themselves they manifest. If you will stop and consider a moment, you will realize how much of these swings of rhythm have affected you in your life, how a period of enthusiasm has been invariably followed by an opposite feeling and mood of depression. Likewise, your moods and periods of courage have been succeeded by equal moods of fear. And so, it has ever been with the majority of persons. Tides of feeling have ever risen and fallen with them, but they have never suspected the cause or reason of the mental phenomena. An understanding of the workings of this principle will give one the key to the mastery of these rhythmic swings of feeling and will enable him to know himself better and to avoid being carried away by these inflows and outflows. The will is superior to the conscious manifestation of this principle, although the principle itself can never be destroyed. We may escape its effects, but the principle operates nevertheless. The pendulum ever swings, although we may escape being carried along with it. There are other features of the operation of this principle of rhythm of which we wish to speak at this point. There comes into its operations that which is known as the law of compensation. One of the definitions or meanings of the word compensate is to counterbalance, which is the sense in which the hermetists use the term. It is this law of compensation to which the Kabbalion refers when it says, The measure of the swing to the right is the measure of the swing to the left. Rhythm compensates. The law of compensation is that the swing in one direction determines the swing in the opposite direction or to the opposite pole. The one balances or counterbalances the other. On the physical plane, we see many examples of this law. The pendulum of the clock swings a certain distance to the right and then an equal distance to the left. The seasons balance each other in the same way. The tides follow the same law and the same law is manifested in all phenomena of rhythm. The pendulum, with a short swing in one direction, has but a short swing in the other, while the long swing to the right invariably means the long swing to the left. An object hurled upward to a certain height has an equal distance to traverse on its return. The force with which a projectile is sent upward a mile is reproduced when the projectile returns to the earth on its return journey. This law is constant on the physical plane, as reference to the standard authorities will show you. But the hermetists carry it still further. They teach that a man's mental states are subject to the same law. The man who enjoys keenly is subject to keen suffering, while he who feels but little pain is capable of feeling but little joy. The pig suffers but little mentally and enjoys but little. He is compensated. And on the other hand, there are other animals who enjoy keenly, but whose nervous organism and temperament cause them to suffer exquisite degrees of pain, and so it is with man. There are temperaments which permit of but low degrees of enjoyment and equally low degrees of suffering, while there are others which permit the most intense enjoyment, but also the most intense suffering. The rule is that the capacity for pain and pleasure in each individual are balanced. The law of compensation is in full operation here. 
But the Hermetists go still further in this matter. They teach that before one is able to enjoy a certain degree of pleasure, he must have swung as far, proportionately, toward the other pole of feeling. They hold, however, that the negative is precedent to the positive in this manner. That is to say that in experiencing a certain degree of pleasure, it does not follow that he will have to pay up for it with a corresponding degree of pain. On the contrary, the pleasure is the rhythmic swing, according to the law of compensation, for a degree of pain previously experienced either in the present life or in a previous incarnation. This throws a new light on the problem of pain. The Hermetists regard the chain of lives as continuous and as forming a part of one life of the individual, so that, in consequence, the rhythmic swing is understood in this way, while it would be without meaning unless the truth of reincarnation is admitted. But the Hermetists claim that the master or advanced student is able, to a great degree, to escape the swing toward pain by the process of neutralization before mentioned. By rising on to the higher plane of the ego, much of the experience that comes to those dwelling on the lower plane is avoided and escaped. The law of compensation plays an important part in the lives of men and women. It will be noticed that one generally pays the price of anything he possesses or lacks. If he has one thing, he lacks another. The balance is struck. No one can keep his penny and have the bit of cake at the same time. Everything has its pleasant and unpleasant sides. The things that one gains are always paid for by the things that one loses. The rich possess much that the poor lack, while the poor often possess things that are beyond the reach of the rich. The millionaire may have the inclination toward feasting, and the wealth wherewith to secure all the dainties and luxuries of the table, while he lacks the appetite to enjoy the same. He envies the appetite and digestion of the laborer who lacks the wealth and inclinations of the millionaire, and who gets more pleasure from his plain food than the millionaire could obtain even if his appetite were not jaded, nor his digestion ruined, for the wants, habits, and inclinations differ. And so it is through life. The law of compensation is ever in operation, striving to balance and counterbalance, and always succeeding in time even though several lives may be required for the return swing of the pendulum of rhythm. Chapter 12. Causation Every cause has its effect. Every effect has its cause. Everything happens according to law. Chance is but a name for law not recognized. There are many planes of causation, but nothing escapes the law. The Kabbalion The great sixth hermetic principle, the principle of cause and effect, embodies the truth that law pervades the universe, that nothing happens by chance, that chance is merely a term indicating cause existing, but not recognized or perceived. That phenomena is continuous without break or exception. The principle of cause and effect underlies all scientific thought, ancient and modern, and was enunciated by the Hermetic teachers in the earliest days. While many and varied disputes between the many schools of thought have since arisen, 
These disputes have been principally upon the details of the operations of the principle, and still more often upon the meaning of certain words. The underlying principle of cause and effect has been accepted as correct by practically all the thinkers of the world worthy of the name. To think otherwise would be to take the phenomena of the universe from the domain of law and order, and to relegate it to the control of the imaginary, something which men have called chance. A little consideration will show that there is, in reality, no such thing as pure chance. Webster defines the word chance as follows. A supposed agent or mode of activity, other than a force, law, or purpose, the operation or activity of such agent, the supposed effect of such an agent, a happening, fortuity, casualty, etc., but a little consideration will show you that there can be no such agent as chance, in the sense of something outside of law, something outside of cause and effect. How could there be a something acting in the phenomenal universe, independent of the laws, order, and continuity of the latter? Such a something would be entirely independent of the orderly trend of the universe, and therefore superior to it. We can imagine nothing outside of the all being outside of the law, and that only because the all is the law in itself. There is no room in the universe for a something outside of and independent of law. The existence of such a something would render all natural laws ineffective and would plunge the universe into chaotic disorder and lawlessness. A careful examination will show that what we call chance is merely an expression relating to obscure causes, causes that we cannot perceive, causes that we cannot understand. The word chance is derived from a word meaning to fall, as the falling of dice, the idea being that the fall of the dice and many other happenings are merely a happening unrelated to any cause, and this is the sense in which the term is generally employed. But when the matter is closely examined, it is seen that there is no chance whatsoever about the fall of the dice. Each time a die falls and displays a certain number, it obeys a law as infallible as that which governs the revolution of the planets around the sun. Back of the fall of the die are causes or chains of causes, running back further than the mind can follow. The position of the die in the box the amount of muscular energy expended in the throw, the condition of the table, etc., etc., are all causes, the effect of which may be seen. But back of these seen causes are the chains of unseen preceding causes, all of which had a bearing upon the number of the die which fell uppermost. If a die be cast a great number of times, it will be found that the numbers shown will be about equal, that is, there will be an equal number of one spot, two spot, etc., coming uppermost. Toss a penny in the air, and it may come down either heads or tails, but make a sufficient number of tosses, and the heads and tails will about even up. This is the operation of the law of average, but both the average and the single toss come under the law of cause and effect, and if we were able to examine into the preceding causes, it would be clearly seen that it was simply impossible for the die to fall other than it did, under the same circumstances and at the same time. Given the same causes, the same results will follow. 
There is always a cause and a because to every event. Nothing ever happens without a cause, or rather, a chain of causes. Some confusion has arisen in the minds of persons considering this principle, from the fact that they were unable to explain how one thing could cause another thing, that is, be the creator of the second thing. As a matter of fact, no thing ever causes or creates another thing. Cause and effect deals merely with events. An event is that which comes, arrives, or happens as a result or consequent of some preceding event. No event creates another event, but is merely a preceding link in the great orderly chain of events flowing from the creative energy of the all. There is a continuity between all events precedent, consequent, and subsequent. There is also a relation existing between everything that has gone before and everything that follows. A stone is dislodged from a mountainside and crashes through a roof of a cottage in the valley below. At first sight, we regard this as a chance effect. But when we examine the matter, we find a great chain of causes behind it. In the first place, there was the rain which softened the earth supporting the stone and which allowed it to fall. Then, back of that was the influence of the sun, other rains, etc., which gradually disintegrated the piece of rock from a larger piece. Then, there were causes which led to the formation of the mountain and its upheaval by convulsions of nature, and so on ad infinitum. Then we might follow up the causes behind the rain, etc. Then we might consider the existence of the roof in short, we would soon find ourselves involved in a mesh of cause and effect from which we would soon strive to extricate ourselves. Just as a man has two parents and four grandparents and eight great-grandparents and sixteen great-great-grandparents and so on until when, say, forty generations are calculated, the numbers of ancestors run into many millions. So it is with the number of causes behind even the most trifling event or phenomena such as the passage of a tiny speck of soot before your eye. It is not an easy matter to trace the bit of soot back to the early period of the world's history when it formed a part of a massive tree trunk, which was afterward converted into coal, and so on, until as the speck of soot it now passes before your vision on its way to other adventures. And a mighty chain of events, causes, and effects brought it to its present condition, and the later is but one of the chain of events which will go to produce other events hundreds of years from now. One of these series of events rising from the tiny bit of suit was the writing of these lines, which caused the typesetter to perform certain work, the proofreader to do likewise, and which will arouse certain thoughts in your mind, and that of others, which in turn will affect others, and so on, and on, and on, beyond the ability of man to think further, and all from the passage of a tiny bit of suit, all of which shows the relativity and association of things, and the further fact that there is no great, there is no small, in the mind that causeth all. Stop to think a moment. If a certain man had not met a certain maid, away back in the dim period of the Stone Age, you who are now reading these lines would not be here, and if, perhaps, the same couple had failed to meet, we who now write these lines would not be here. We who now write these lines would not now be here. And the very act of writing, on our part, 
and the act of reading on yours will affect not only the respective lives of yourself and ourselves, but will also have a direct or indirect effect upon many other people now living and who will live in the ages to come. Every thought we think, every act we perform, has its direct and indirect results which fit into the great chain of cause and effect. We do not wish to enter into a consideration of free will or determinism in this work for various reasons. Among the many reasons is the principal one that neither side of the controversy is entirely right. In fact, both sides are partially right according to the Hermetic teachings. The principle of polarity shows that both are but half-truths, the opposing poles of truth. The teachings are that a man may be both free and yet bound by necessity, depending upon the meaning of the terms, and the height of truth from which the matter is examined. The ancient writers expressed the matter thus, The further the creation is from the center, the more it is bound. The nearer the center it reaches, the nearer free is it. The majority of people are more or less the slaves of heredity, environment, etc., and manifest very little freedom. They are swayed by the opinions, customs, and thoughts of the outside world, and also by their emotions, feelings, moods, etc. They manifest no mastery worthy of the name. They indignantly repudiate this assertion, saying, Why, I certainly am free to act and do as I please. I do just what I want to do. But they fail to explain whence arise the want to and as I please. What makes them want to do one thing in preference to another? What makes them please to do this and not to do that? Is there no because to their pleasing and wanting? The master can change these pleases and wants into others at the opposite end of the mental pole. He is able to will to will instead of to will because some feeling, mood, emotion, or environmental suggestion arouses a tendency or desire within him to do so. The majority of people are carried along like the falling stone, obedient to environment, outside influences and internal moods, desires, etc., not to speak of these desires and wills of others stronger than themselves, heredity, environment, and suggestion, carrying them along without resistance on their part or the exercise of will. Moved like the pawns on the checkerboard of life, they play their parts and are laid aside after the game is over. But the masters, knowing the rules of the game, rise above the plane of material life and placing themselves in touch with the higher powers of their nature, dominate their own moods, characters, qualities, and polarity, as well as the environment surrounding them and thus become movers in the game, instead of pawns, causes instead of effects. The masters do not escape the causation of the higher planes, but fall in with the higher laws, and thus master circumstances on the lower plane. They thus form a conscious part of the law, instead of being mere blind instruments. While they serve on the higher planes, they rule on the material plane, but on higher and on lower the law is always in operation. There is no such thing as chance. The blind goddess has been abolished by reason. We are able to see now, with eyes made clear by knowledge, that everything is governed by universal law, that the infinite number of laws are but manifestations of the one great law, the law which is the all.
It is true indeed that not a sparrow drops unnoticed by the mind of the all, that even the hairs in our head are numbered. As the scriptures have said, there is nothing outside of law, nothing that happens contrary to it. And yet, do not make the mistake of supposing that man is but a blind automaton. Far from that. The hermetic teachings are that man may use law to overcome laws, and that the higher will always prevail against the lower, until, at last, he has reached the stage in which he seeks refuge in the law itself, and laughs the phenomenal laws to scorn. Are you able to grasp the inner meaning of this?